0: In the meantime, then, pulling up the sofa, and my sofa guest with us today has recently started his own consultancy and mentoring business. Uh, He uh, mentors business leaders. Simon Barrington worked for the Christian charity Samaritan's Purse for many years and was a guest on the sofa, I think, in uh, that capacity. He's travelled to all corners of the world to help with relief, like Haiti after the earthquake, Liberia during the Ebola crisis. He's, in fact, just come back from India
1: with your new hat on as well. So thank you for coming in. Pleasure. Lovely to see you. And
0: and how long's uh, how long is this business? So it's Forge Leadership.
1: Yeah, we're just 18 months in, so very young.
0: <laughs> and, and was it a big thing to, to, to come away from Samaritan's Purse where you were CEO you? and, then, and yeah. then to set up your own business? And well, it's massive.
1: Alone. I mean, ever since I was 21, I've had a salary come in every month. Um, so 14 years at BT out at Astral Park and 14 years as CEO of a, of a large charity. And it's a completely different mentality that when you step out of the boat, and you're doing something completely new and you don't know where your new client, next clients are going to come from and you don't know if everybody's going to even want to do business with you. Um, uh, but it's been a great first 18 months, and so we've done really, really well. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited about the future as well.
0: So, so, so explain how the idea, what it is, because I guess you thought about this for a long time and, and, yeah. and, you, and you decided that this was your niche. This yeah. was what you wanted yeah No, Absolutely.
1: Do. So what I saw happening both in BT and um, in, in the charity that I was leading, was that actually we do a lot to develop leaders up what I call the competency ladder so uh, in BT you know I started off when I was 21 didn't know what I was doing I had fantastic bosses around me who just encouraged me um, took risks with me promoted me above the, above the level of my incompetence <laughs> uh, into different roles and I climbed this capacity ladder and they would see you know did the rollout of call minder, which was now 1571, entry machine in the network, then internet products, then into the cabinet office, then came out of that and back into BT, starting up new companies. And all of a sudden, you get to a point where you realise it's not about you, and it's not about your capacity. It's actually about your character and the ability to create environments in which other people can grow and develop. And corporates are generally pretty poor at saying, what about your identity? What about who you really are? What about your integrity and your core values and beliefs? What about leading out of what comes from the inside? Um, And I was deeply challenged with that, probably in my late 30s, early 40s, to go, what kind of environment am I creating? So my first director boss at BT would say to me, Simon, you're just scary and you're scaring everybody around you. And I'm going, what do you mean? He said, well, you get all this data and all this information and you read it all and you go, right, this is where we're going to go. And everybody follows you, but they're scared about the level of capacity that you have and you just got to step back and you just got to start being a bit more real and a bit more human and a bit more vulnerable and asking for help and creating teams in which people can grow into to be the best that they can possibly be. So I got really passionate about coaching younger leaders, um, developing younger leaders, investing in them. So when I was 21, 22, if you asked me what's the best thing about being leader, I would go making a difference, making changes, setting the direction, setting the pace. Now I go, it's about bringing on people who come after you, yeah? So a friend of mine, Trevor Waldock, wrote a book called To Plant a Walnut Tree. And he basically said, leadership is a false ceiling, yeah? That actually what we should be aiming for is to help people plant things that will only provide shade after they've gone. And the best leaders actually look beyond the horizon, look beyond the this quarter's results, this year's results, and go, what are we going to change? What are we going to do that's going to make a difference in 20 to 30 year olds, What 30 years time? What are we going to do that's going to make a difference for the next generation? And that's what Forge is all about, is basically investing in the millennials, investing in the Gen Zs, um, investing in the next generation of leaders and saying, how can we help them learn more quickly? Make more of a difference build their capacity build their character and lead with integrity in a very difficult business environment how can we do that and so that's why i'm excited and passionate about can you have now. some
0: politicians please because <laughs> <laughs> the whole political world is not aimed at long term Is it's it? it's
1: not and, and actually the business world isn't the average tenure of a ceo in in, in a corporate is two years and nine months yeah, so, so, you know, what can you do to make a change in two years, nine months? Actually the businesses that win generally have a longevity of leadership, have a longevity of leadership that is actually able to look beyond the, the two-year horizon to the five-year horizon and the ten-year horizon. I say you know, the businesses that win are not the ones that have the best share price today. They're the ones that are going to be here in five years' time, in 10 years' time and in 20 years' time who actually are providing shade for the next generation who are visionary. Those are the businesses that win.
0: And I think you also look look after leaders themselves, don't you? Because leaders can be so busy looking after everybody else yeah. that you, you forget that you're quite important. I mean, Absolutely. if you fail, then it's not going yeah. to do anyone. And, really. and that's
1: come out of my own bitter experience, really. I mean, in, in BT, I... Burnt out at one stage. Um, we were rolling out CallMinder, so entry machine in the network, um, traveling up and down the country, traveling back and forth to um, a supplier's site uh, down in in the south of the country, and and I just totally burnt out. And for six, seven weeks. Couldn't get out of bed, couldn't walk into town. And we lived pretty close to Ipswich Town Centre. Uh, I would walk down to town and I'd have to ring my wife and say, Can you come and pick me up and, and take me back? That's enough for today. I had it. Um, and I learned through that that actually, you know, leaders who win are the leaders who are there um, finishing well. My my wife ran a marathon um, when she was forty years old. Never run before, and uh, our sister in uh, my sister-in-law lives in L.A. And she started running with her along Malibu Beach and then tried to come and run the London Marathon running through Suffolk in the rain <laughs> and the sleet in the middle of January and February. But she learned this technique which was run run nine minutes, walk a minute, run nine minutes, walk a minute, run nine minutes, walk a minute. And you get to 18 miles in the marathon of doing that and loads of people have passed you and they've run on and, and, and you think you're losing and then in the last six, seven miles you start gaining ground and you start overtaking them again because actually you've set... A pace which is sustainable. So we help leaders just take that one minute breath, work out what it is in their rhythm of life that's actually going to create space where their tank is filled, where they're refueled, where they're re-energized, because actually Leaders um, worth following are actually leaders who take care of themselves and actually set a decent pace and finish the marathon in a good time. She did it in four hours. Well done, her. Forty or something like that, um, and we all cheered her on. And she'd never run before. Um, but leaders, leadership is a marathon; it's not a sprint.
0: And it's not. And, and watching her, you wouldn't be scared. And that's what you were saying about you being as a no, scary leader. Absolutely. If you're leading in this jet, this pace, that people think, "Oh my goodness, yeah. I can't keep up." And
1: we're just saying to leaders, be visionary. Be passionate, but be real.
0: Well, sort of, I, I, and you're obviously getting people come to you, which is what you yeah. what you want because you're yeah. selling yeah. your services, aren't you, yeah. to look yeah. after them. As Slow people are coming to you and you are helping.
1: Absolutely. So we're coaching about five chief execs currently and also the senior teams of four different organisations. Um, and I now have four coaches who work with me who go in and, 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 and coach and do five or six sessions with someone. And usually just having an external perspective on what's going on, just being able to speak We all need outsiders who will speak into our lives and give us perspective because people who've been there, who've seen it, who have the experience, who can come in and go, I can see exactly what's going on here. Yeah. And it's not you. (laughs) Actually, it's just the environment you're in. You're in a toxic environment um, or it's just poor relationships. How do we start to fix that? How do we start to turn that around?
0: Do people feel it's a sign of weakness, though, to say that they need they need help, or they want they to talk do, through them. But We're not very good, are we? But about, but
1: what I actually say is is um, vulnerability is bravery. Vulnerability is not. You, I can weakness. tell you, have you got a book
0: full of all your phrases? I, I have. Bet you have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so in reality, you know, we all applaud vulnerability when we see it in someone else.
0: Women yeah. it's funny cuz uh, uh, women are allowed to be vulnerable aren't they but men yeah. aren't not, not so the, much in the same not way. so much
1: but even in leadership it's very hard to be vulnerable it's very hard to ask for help and women struggle with that in leadership as actually, well yeah, probably so not. encourage them to actually um, to to lead vulnerably so we applaud it in other people and then we think it's horrible and weakness in ourselves But actually just think about, you know, you can't be creative without making yourself vulnerable. You have to take risks. You have to try new things out. The greatest innovators were completely vulnerable. They tried to invent the, the light bulb a hundred times and on the hundred and first time won for having failed a hundred times, you know. And and the reality is I was with the armed forces last week. You can't actually get to a place of victory without actually taking a risk and making yourself vulnerable. Our soldiers go out on the front line and they make themselves completely vulnerable. But that's bravery, yeah? And we're just encouraging leaders, just be real just be vulnerable just ask for help and actually everybody will applaud that around you and will see you as a brave and a courageous
0: leader. I'm intrigued because you you mentioned millennials earlier on. So millennials in their thirties, aren't they? They're the age of my sons. I think yeah, in your so early thirties. Born, born
1: 1984 to 2000. That's my yeah. first one was 84, and the second was 86. <laughs> so so yes, they, sort of
0: just in their, into yeah, their thirties. Yeah, yeah. And th- and you have written. I think you've got a book coming out as well. But you're, you're looking at them for the future as well, which is yeah. interesting. And I was, uh, you've done some research. If we did, the research, we they, did a research. We
1: did a year long research project. They feel
0: put down by people a lot of the they time. They do.
1: So. So we went and interviewed 500 millennials, and um, the characteristics of millennials, they've been stereotyped. So the typical stereotypes, if you read any of the literature, is they're lazy, narcissistic, entitled, disloyal. I mean, just a horrible set of adjectives. And I went, Actually, I don't see that in some of the leaders that I'm looking at. The, lead, the millennial leaders I see are started new charities. I know one lady, she's in her 29, um, she's started her own um, human trafficking. Uh, anti-human trafficking charity in London were rescuing women off the streets um, of London who have been trafficked. Just incredible change makers. Um, I didn't see that. So we went into a year-long research project, interviewed 500 um, millennials and asked them, where do you get your identity from? What are you afraid of? Um, what do you see in the best leaders? So they said, in the best leaders, we see integrity, number one. We see humility and we see passion. Those are the three characteristics that we actually want to see in a leader, integrity, humility, and passion. And then we said, well, what kind of culture uh, do you thrive the best in? And they went, we, we, we thrive the best in cultures where there are tight ropes and safety nets, where there are challenges, tight ropes to walk, but safety nets that will catch us when we fail. So we do our best work when you give us an opportunity to take steps that are way beyond our comfort zone, that allow us to fail and then we get picked back up again and we get supported to to go and right, walk the tightrope. I call them high support, high challenge environments. They also told us that they hated conflict. Um, they found it really difficult to have conflict discussions in the workplace particularly conflicts with older people um and they have a love-hate love-hate relationship with technology as well
0: on the sofa with leslie dolphin on bbc radio suffolk so Simon Barrington, founder director of his uh, new business called Forge Leadership Consultancy. We will gallop a bit through his life because uh, Samaritans, Purse, the charity, mm-hmm. Christian charity, made it, it was a big part in your life, yeah, wasn't it absolutely, as well? Yeah. And uh, I know your faith is a huge part as well. So let's yeah. we talk about that. Yeah. These are. Did you have key questions when you came last time? No, I didn't. Hey, this is this is newer it's new and novel. New, then. So, okay. so I just pick one of these. Pick a key and a fob, and then you have to okay. answer the question on the fob, which you can't see because I've turned them all upside down
1: says what is your favourite dish or meal to cook
0: now how, how appropriate is that as we you, I know that you love as you've travelled you've loved sampling food but yeah. m- but maybe not cooking it
1: um, could you were just yeah, saying no I do love cooking actually and I enjoy cooking and I, I, I enjoy cooking curry yeah so a good vegetable curry um, do you is use all the spices then? All the spices, yeah. Although, you know, get a jar. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then add some spices so in good. afterwards yeah. as well. So a few jars, chilies. Well, the jars are brilliant. because they lots ha- of coriander.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we were saying earlier on while the music was playing that you've just been to India and, yeah. and you, you couldn't believe that you really do have curry for every
1: meal. Curry just for breakfast. And, and, you know, your stomach can cope, but your head is just <laughs> doing somersaults, thinking, how do I cope with this... Uh, Breakfast time. I mean, the hosts that I was with were very kind and, and ended up giving me bananas. But that's what and, they have, though. That's fascinating, and very sweet isn't it? Chai. Yeah. And a chai tea, yeah, is it?
0: No, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about the, and the banana, the, the batter yeah, banana. Yeah, so, so. so
1: basically, they, in, in Kerala, in the south of India, they do these incredible whole bananas and they slice them in half and pack it with coconut um, and then they deep fry it in batter that's very similar to you know, the cod we'd have. Uh, Felixstowe Beach or Um And it's about the same size as a piece of cod, actually. So your brain is going, oh, this is going to be fish. And then you bite into it, and there's this sweet mixture of juicy banana and Ooh. gorgeous coconut just oozing out. Oh, it's and, <laughs> and you have that with chai. And yeah, which again with... is very, very sweet. So I've probably had more sugar in two weeks than I've had in the rest of the last of the whole, the whole of the last year. It's
0: fascinating how food is so different, yeah. isn't it? My guest with us today is Simon Barrington. He's the founder director of Forge Leadership Consultancy. Just type that into the uh, to any search engine, and it will appear, uh, and you can find out all about the work that he does. Uh, we'll come back to that in a little while. But so sort of gallop through your life, and I'm right in thinking that you
1: started in Suffolk because you went. Origin from Suffolk, were you? No. So I was born in Cardiff in South Wales. So I'm a Welshman. No, you've Welshman. Got no lilt! I'm a Welshman living in exile, see? In, ca- <laughs> see, in, in Suffolk. Yeah. And when I talk to my mum, it comes out like this. Um, and uh, But moved to Suffolk after university uh, to join British Telecom. And we were doing research into speech recognition. And that was after dabbling
0: a weeny bit with the BBC, I think. Cause, yes. Cause a weeny bit. Because yes. you, you, you love your sciences, you love yeah. your music, love yeah. musicals at school. Yeah. and yeah. And of course, you're so not allowed to in the world, are you, in terms of careers? But you managed no. to find a course that did physics and music? Physics
1: and music together. So we were hated by the music students because all we did was the practical stuff and none of the boring history. And we were hated by the physical physics guys because all we did was the practical stuff and none, none of the boring that. theory. Um, so I had a great time. <laughs> it's the best bit of both, and it was really? the time when synthesizers were just starting to come out and computer based music. And, you know, it was all kind of punch cards and in, into a hopper that went into a mainframe that then created the music the following day, so nothing immediate. But it was wonderful and inspiring. And and actually, my dream was to be a, a sound engineer or an outside broadcast engineer for the BBC, or or go and mix records. And you did dabble a bit, didn't I, d- I dabbled with that with BT um, for about six months, and then. Um, got offered a job with them and got offered in Cardiff and got offered a job with BT at the same time and I was just about to get married and some wise old people said to us um, so what hours of BT and I went well it's supposed to be 9 to 5 never was but it's supposed to be 9 to 5 and the BBC job was shifts and any time of day or night and they went ah, uh, you should really move to Suffolk. So we did, and uh, being here since 1989, I thought we'd be here for two years, but um, the opportunities in BT were phenomenal, incredible organization, incredible bosses. Um, so started off speech recognition technology, back in the days, pre-Siri. I mean, Siri, you know, so this is, it's cause, just amazing. Because it
0: was quite hard to get people, just to get things to understand the way you speak. Yeah, like, I mean,
1: did you say yes? <laughs> no. <laughs> then did you say no? Um, and the digits 0 to 9, and that was about it. Um, And then over time, over the the 14 years or so that I was there, telephone banking started to come out, and you'd get um, real-world speech recognition, and and that was great. But the first applications we rolled out were just yes and no and 0 to 9. And then the internet wave came along, and I got involved with BT Internet and, 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 and BT's Internet products, and then went into the cabinet. Office for What's um, the cabinet, um, cabinet yeah, office. Yeah, in my tall uh, for a year on subcom for there? BT. So this was the days when um, the government was trying to get uh, government services online. Um, So it was pre-online tax returns. So we were creating the infrastructure um, that tax returns could be done on and everything you can do now in terms of uh, your driving licence, etc. But my minister there was Mo Molan. Oh, yeah, yeah, bless her. Mo Molan, um, who is an incredible woman. And I always remember the first time I went in to see her, I had to write a speech for her that she was going to deliver in Sheffield. And the speech came out with red marks all across (laughs) it, just completely practically completely completely scrubbed out she said Simon you have to remember that my audience are not Times and Guardian readers (laughs) (laughs) she didn't say what readers they were but you know the insinuation was simplify it simplify it get your language (laughs) (laughs) simplified and she taught me a lot about communication actually how to communicate messages well how to package them how to use pictures um, to engage with people so you know the bit we did earlier about tight ropes and safety nets you That that was Momo Mo and just really engaging. She's a phenomenal woman. And then back into BT, um, where at that time BT was starting its Bright Star incubator, and trying to create new companies out of intellectual property and patents that it wasn't using within its core business. And I sat on the BT side of that, helping to spin out those businesses. And then about. 12, 13 years into that, I went on a trip to the Philippines with an organisation called Tear Fund and ended up on Smoky Mountain. Um, Smoky Mountain is a rubbish tip, or was a rubbish tip, just outside Manila in the Philippines, um, home to 4,000 people where the children would scavenge amongst the rubbish, um, find rubbish and then go and sell it. And um, Tear Fund were running a medical clinic there and we got involved with that. But I always remember standing on Manila Harbour which is just by the rubbish dump. Um, and Manala is beautiful, just crystal blue sea, bright sunlight. And a nine-year-old girl um, coming up to us who was malnutritioned, didn't know where her next meal was coming from, extended belly, um, very yellow around the temples. And her turning to us and, and saying, well, what do you do? And, like, the silence falls at that point, And you go, how do I explain to this girl who doesn't know where next to me will come in that I'm a senior leader in a telecommunications company that's driving shareholder value for multinationals um, through telecommunications and computers. And my world's just exploded at that point and I couldn't cope with that. And So I came back and went, I really wanna make a difference. I really wanna do something that's worthwhile. And need to be making a difference for children like this um, and started looking around and, and cheekily applied for a chief exec role thinking there's no way I'm gonna get that um, got shortlisted into the top three um, then they decided not to appoint and they appointed someone internally and then the candidate that they appointed internally rang me up and said Simon would you come in as my operations director so I did I went as an operation director for Samaritan's Purse and then three months later he retired through ill health and they went here we go (laughs) take it on and i spent 14 years then um working with children like the girl that i met in the philippines trying to make a difference in their lives in the midst of emergencies so the earthquake in haiti we were there within 24 hours providing water filters and shelter um the ebola crisis in liberia where we ran one of the only hospitals in liberia that was uh, treating um patients with ebola our staff were on the front line seeing people die in front of them um Uh, every day uh, two of our doctors got Ebola and had to be flown out and and miraculously recovered Um, the earthquake in Nepal um, got to travel to South Sudan into northern Iraq when Mosul was falling um, and we had an emergency hospital just 10 kilometres from um, the front line in Mosul and one of my funniest stories actually was was going uh, to the front line in, outside Mosul um, and meeting a group of soldiers there and one of the guys that we had uh, with us was a spitting image of Ed Sheeran and, and, and the soldiers looked at us and looked at him and went, oh, you brought Ed Sheeran <laughs> <laughs> to the front line in, in Mosul and Sing a song! Sing a song! Ed, sing a song! So, this poor guy had to sing an Ed Sheeran's. He, he did! He did! Do they He sang to this Castle day? on the Hill. Um, uh, just, out, just out on the front line in Mosul, and they had no idea that he wasn't Ed Sheeran, so they were all lining so up, up and having photographs. <laughs> but the incredible thing was in the midst of disaster scenarios like that, there was always hope, there was always joy, there were always phenomenal people who weren't content with living under the circumstances, who were determined to, to rise up above their circumstances, to punch some holes in the darkness, to make a phenomenal difference in their communities. So women who'd get up at four o'clock in the morning, go and collect water, walk three miles to go and collect water, come back, go and work in the fields for an hour um, or two, get a dollar for that work, and then come back and look after six or seven orphaned children whose parents had died of HIV and AIDS and work and work and provide them with meals and do their homework and then with them and then go to sleep at one o'clock in the morning, get back up at four o'clock in the morning and do the same. So just an incredible sense of, of humanity and hope within humanity that would lift your spirits. I mean, people would say to me, Simon, don't you get down and frustrated going no, I get down and frustrated here I was going to (laughs) say, did you come back home and want to shake people? Well you do because
0: uh, really we worry about the most insignificant things often don't
1: we? We do I, I mean people have real problems here Okay, there's no getting away from that um, real problems that people are facing on a day-to-day basis with mental health and, and health issues, and, and and I don't want to belittle those in any way, shape or form, but the ability of people in the direst of situations to make a difference for those around them in a way that um, is transformative and inspirational. There's a woman um, we met in Rwanda who um, couldn't send her kids to school because she couldn't pay for their uniforms and couldn't provide them food. And one of our workers came along and noticed that she had a lemon tree growing in her her garden. And they said to her, do you know you can sell lemons in, in, in the market? And she said, really? Wow. So she started taking the lemons, selling them in the market. And then she planted 24 other Lemon trees and became known as the Lemon Tree Woman in that village, um, and went and sold the lemons in the market every day and got a significant amount of income from that. And then to see her kids in uniform, dressed up smart, clean, going to school, getting an education that's transformative. That's making a difference for the next generation. That's leadership. That's going down, planting the walnut tree, as we were talking about. It was a lemon tree in this instance. Um, And phenomenally inspirational. And I would come back and go, gosh, if I did half of that back here you know think about the difference we might make in our towns and cities and villages and communities
0: it's interesting because you could have uh, when you had that first thought with that little girl who as you say no idea where her meal was going you could have ignored that couldn't you and i'm sure a lot of us do just go away and try not to let it but but is your faith uh, have you always had a faith
1: uh, yeah, so since I was young, I mean, interesting. my dad, um, when he was in his mid-40s, um, regained a faith and left his job as an electrician. He, he used to fit um, uh, lights on South Wales buses and caravans um, and uh, left that job when he was 45 to go away to college and train to be a church pastor. And um, that was deeply impactful on me. Um, and yeah I've always had a faith from that perspective and there were moments in high school where I doubted that and questioned it and and wrestled with it um, but made a decision early in my life that actually yeah there was a God and I trusted him and I was going to follow him Um, and that's you know helped me through my whole um, uh, career and my whole leadership style and i think actually there are strong christian ethos and values in Forge leadership um in terms of looking at who who are you really what's your identity um uh what are your core values and your beliefs um how do you live a sustainable lifestyle in leadership and and how do you influence i think they're core christian values under that um that anybody can share <laughs> um, because th- th- they are rooted in, in good moral values that, that all of us can say yes, even if we don't agree with the particular tenets of a the particular faith side, side of a thing. Um, so I've learned a lot, for instance, from um, Benedictine m- monks who have a distinct rhythm to life they have a rhythm about eating together. They have a rhythm about walking together. They have a rhythm about uh, doing particular things that are uh, providing hospitality to people. Um, and there was an interesting article in the, in the Financial Times just recently. The saying, you know, actually, even people of n- no faith can benefit from the rhythms of working that through for themselves and going. There's a time to be still. There's a time to be in community there's a time to rejoice, there's a time to engage, and there's a time to back off. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's really helped me and my thinking in very practical ways as well.
0: I have another key question. Oh, yes, please. We'll sort of look to the future and some more of your plans and talk okay. more about your book as well in just a minute uh, Which two. is
1: your favourite place in Suffolk? Well, that's very easy. So, Oldborough. Um, Just like that. Just like that, yeah. So, you know, love it there. Love the countryside around it. Love going on walks from Alderbury up to Thorpe Ness and Alderbury down the coast, the railway line. Love the Lantern Festival and the fireworks in the middle of summer. Fish and chips, of course. Um, Lovely walks, lovely coffees. Lots of um, very fond memories um, of of Suffolk and friends and family.
0: Is Suffolk your home now? Would you go anywhere else?
1: Uh, Suffolk's home. Now, yeah. I mean, my parents are still in Cardiff and South Wales. um, But actually, home is really about the friendships that you create. So we just have such a strong sense of community here and friendships. um, I think it'd be very difficult for us to move away.
0: Guest with us on the sofa there, Simon Barrington. Uh, he's uh, set up his own business, uh, Forge Leadership Consultancy, as we've been hearing, came to Suffolk with BT. Uh, he worked for Samaritan's Purse, the Christian charity, for 14 years, wasn't it? Travelling yeah. the world yeah. as well. And uh, and they do the shoebox appeal as yeah. well, don't they, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And you've seen all sorts of things around yeah. the world. So, so what are your hopes and your, and your plans for Forge Leadership? I know it's really early days, but yeah. you must have lots of hopes.
1: Yeah, well, we're certainly growing the coaching business and the executive. Coaching side, um, we've just started a, a new offering around helping boards of governors of trustees, uh, boards of trustees and governors of uh, schools and charities uh, get better and more effective at what they do. So that's really interesting. Because
0: I, yeah, I've been uh, I've been on uh, governors, yeah. you know, school governors yeah. boards, and and yeah. also I'm on a, you know like a library I look yeah. after. Yeah. So that's yeah. really helpful yeah. to yeah. show yeah. how you can actually be effective in what you do. Absolutely,
1: and and you know, uh, lots of governors actually struggle with well, what should we be doing here? what's our yeah, role what here, do? how yeah. do we help the staff, how do we help and yeah. support them, um, how can we be effective in doing that? So, so that's really exciting. And then I've been writing a book which comes out on the 18th of April uh, called Leading the Millennial Way, which builds on the research that we did into millennials last year. But, but questions, what's the environment that the next generation are leading in? It's volatile, it's uncertain, it's chaotic, um, lots of tectonic plates clashing, lots of tension there. So what type of leader does it take to lead? in that environment and we answer those questions in the book and it's actually written with a lady called Rachel Luchford who's a millennial leader in her own right um, and is a dialogue between the generations of how can we help the next generation the Do we Are we really that different
0: about... in terms of generations? Yeah, cause... in terms
1: of worldview, it's incredible. Because
0: so... you'd have thought that, I mean I would have just thought that my young the young people of today are feeling what I felt like, you know, 30 years ago but I guess the world we've all been brought up in is just totally different. This... I was not long after the War, which will have affected the way yeah, I was
1: brought up. Absolutely. One thing that really helped me was a millennial saying to me, "The problem with you, Simon, is that is that you grew up with a really narrow worldview." And it's true. I mean, when I was growing up, it was BBC One, BBC Two. I wasn't allowed to watch ITV because it was evil. Yes, channel, I wasn't channel, <laughs> channel Four hadn't come along. No. Yeah, uh, Channel Five came along in my early twenties. My um, newspaper was a South Wales Echo. Everything I knew, I found out from my neighbours and my friends and my peers in school, okay? And my whole life has been an exploration of that worldview growing and growing wider and wider and wider. And they said, but for us, we've grown up, our worldview started really, really broad and really, really wide. And the challenge for us has been to find our place within that worldview. So they don't compare themselves against the people in their own village or their own community. So if you're, when I was growing up, if I was an excellent clarinetist, which I wasn't, um, I compared myself against the people in my school or the people in my road or the people in my neighbourhood. Now you compare yourself against the best YouTube video that you can find of a clarinetist yeah. and you go, am I good or am I not? I seem I'm pretty rubbish. And actually that does a lot to negative self-esteem.
0: That was quite interesting. It was, a, it was Panorama, wasn't it, on television yeah. last night talking yeah. about influencers, yeah. so these people they see on, yeah. on social media all the yeah, time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have a friend who's 17, um, has a YouTube channel, um, and he keeps getting sent clothes from uh, these marketers who want him to wear their clothes on his YouTube channel. He's 17, you know, he's doing it all this out of his bedroom, but he's providing leadership He is influencing a group of people around him. And increasingly, we say leadership is about influence rather than about position.
0: And it's, it's all about ethical, isn't it? And how to do that absolutely, responsibly. how to do that well,
1: and do it in a transparent way. So organizations like Patagonia and and where do they come from have actually you know revolutionized the way that we do fashion and the way that we do supply chains and where does where does our clothes come from? And so where is complicated it for yeah. young
0: people. Then I've you? really <laughs> made it so differently. So your that book is out in in April on the
1: eighteenth of April, and um, it's on Amazon. You can pre-order it and and, and other. Pre- good places where you can get books Um, and uh, we're hoping it will help millennial leaders to think about the environment in which they're growing up and how they can be better leaders but also help older generations to think how they can engage with millennials and help them to make the difference that they've been born to make.
0: Soon because I know so I was having a quick look at the the website and some of the thing is that, you know, people use the the age card. I'm sixty so I know more than you, which yeah, is no, we shouldn't do that, should we? It's already
1: no. And I think increasingly I'm encouraging bi directional mentoring where older leaders learn from millennials as well as as, as the other way around. Um, and there's a lot to learn. You know, the fact that they're digital natives, they've grown up with new technology, they do have a different worldview, they're fast adaptive, they're creative, they want to make a difference. We have a lot to learn from them. And one of the I, I run a podcast and I've been interviewing millennial leaders for the last 15 weeks. And um, I'm just inspired by their courage and their bravery and their commitment to making a difference.
0: Simon, thank you as always. You're Absolute
1: back. pleasure.